Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an only episode of Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And so much happier when Ohio State loses that game against Michigan. I'm Nick Samari. I don't know. You know, we're going to lose our whole Michigan fan base here, Nick. Uh, we're going to get into that in just a second. On the program today, speaking of some good news, uh, as Nick just pointed out there, uh, some good news finally happened in the war between Israel and Hamas. Nick and I, with the latest on the ceasefire, call it a pause, whatever you want. Hostages have been released. Palestinian prisoners have been released as well. We're going to break it all down. Plus, if you did not hear the crazy story of Emily Hand, Emily Hand, remember this name, everybody, the nine-year-old hostage that was part of this release that's happened over the last couple of days between Israel and Hamas. Wait till you hear what happened in this incredible story. More on that in just a bit. Plus, later on in the program, she's a professor over at the University of Notre Dame. She's a historian as well and author of the new book, Democracy in Darkness. Caitlin Carter joins us on the podcast to discuss her new book and how American democracy was actually born under the cloak of darkness. Nick, we're going to get into all of that later on with Caitlin. A really cool book and a really interesting look at uh, democracy and how it all started and how it all came to be. So, Caitlin, in just a bit, uh, before I say hello to Mr. Severi, on your episode of Back Your Play with Q is out there. Q's back from the holiday break, breaking down everything that happened this past weekend in the NFL and college football, crazy games, championship Saturday upcoming across all the major conferences, a wild finish with Alabama and Auburn. Rich breaks it all down. New episodes of Back Your Play with Q over on LeonMediaNetwork.com or listen wherever you get your podcast. Now I say hello. To my co-host, Mr. Severi. Nick, how are 
how are you doing, man? Uh, how's how's Thanksgiving? Uh, we're we're back from the break here. You're about to go on a little vacation. You're just telling me off air. You can you can bring it over here, of course, and make everybody jealous. And we're gonna be missing you, but we're gonna have some fill in guest hosts that are gonna be coming along the way. Well, there's a couple people out there that are not gonna uh, miss you, Nick, uh, and your voice. And you know you get the comments all the time. And I, I can't wait for you to rebut them here in two seconds. Uh, here we go. <laughs> here he goes. Here he goes, everybody. Come on, let me hear it, Dr. Zaveri. Tell these people how they're going to miss your voice. I, I just don't care. <laughs> Truly, I'm not, I mean, the, the fact that they know this means that they listen, which is good. Right. right? Like, engagement's always appreciated. But honestly, do better, dude. Seriously. Get a mic. Hey, by, get hey, a by the way, by, by the yeah. way, you texted me a, a photo of somebody saying that uh, we got too many ads on our show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, folks, <laughs> folks, listen. Yeah, you want to take people into the under the tent a little bit because I, I appreciate the way you explain it to me. Our, our our boy Mitch. Mitch is a listener of the show and yes. shout out to Mitch out in Colorado with his uh, wife Elizabeth, who's also a, a fan of the program and appeared on the Educate US podcast, which is still available to download or listen to via LeonMeanNetwork.com. Uh, but yeah, Mitch hit me up and said, you know, you what's up with all the ads? No, he didn't say it like that. He just noted that there was like a lot of ads on the show. And, you know, obviously I was playfully saying, hey, listen, that's like kind of how the bills get paid or hey. a little bit. But you took me a little bit more through. There's other pieces to consider there. Yeah. Listen, for, first, we'll, we'll get into your Thanksgiving break in just a sec. But and everybody, I hope you had a happy and healthy Thanksgiving. Folks, when we started this show, Nick and I, three years ago. I remember a friend of mine telling me, oh, man, wait till you guys get advertisers. It's going to be funny to hear you guys do ad reads. And at the time, I was like, it's never going to happen because I don't, you know, yes, I know how to do an ad read, but I don't know how we're going to do that. Who's going to actually pay us to actually read ads? That means we would have to have accumulated listeners. That means advertisers will have heard that and seen that, and therefore they advertise on the show. So now we're at a point where, again, shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. I always mention them at the end of the show. They insert ads based on your listenership. Thousands of people listen to us. So they insert ads. That's why you get different ad breaks. Nick and I individually with our show do sponsorships like we have with BetterHelp. And by the way, you can go to betterhelp.com backslash can we please talk. Uh, and no, no, seriousness, but like that's how we do our ad reads. So apologies for the ads, folks. We will consider it, obviously. But Nick and I, we want to continue to produce great content. Uh, we're not beholden to BetterHelp. We, can't co- <laughs> we can cover issues that are not outside of the mental health space. So that's the way a little, a little appealing of the curtain here of how things work. I apologize, and which is why I try to make the ad reads a little bit more funnier especially for our, our, our sponsors over at Fresh Roasted Coffee and everywhere. Anyway, that's, beyond that, I just thought it was funny. Um, give me a little bit of how Thanksgiving break was. And, and, you know, you always like to do this on the education show, by the way, you tease that. You always talk about this humanity part. So how was Thanksgiving? Let's start there. How, how was everything in the Zaveri household? Like any good CEO of a media company, I appreciate you checking all your products, right? right. So, um, no, it's and it's true though. Yeah, educate us. We like to just begin by connecting with one another. It's a practice that we we ask anyone to do, you know, in their respective organizations, classrooms, and such. No, it was good. Um, it was interesting Thanksgiving. You know, my wife was working. You know, obviously she was at the hospital that day. She usually doesn't miss Thanksgiving, but this this year, you know, it just came up. But yeah, so we you know brought the kids to my parents' house. They had a great time. My sister loves to cook Thanksgiving dinner, so she did that. Friday, you know, the Fantastic Four did come back together, so we had dinner with my wife. And then 
Sunday, actually, we did something with uh, some of her work people. So it was another Thanksgiving dinner and got a chance to catch, you know, the you know Philadelphia Buffalo games. A lot of Eagles fans around here. So it was fun, fun to catch. So that was that was really it. It was. Yeah, it's, a, you know, I think for many of us that do a little bit of traveling during this holiday, it's busy. You're on the road. If you got kids with you, you're just hoping to get to wherever you need to in a timely fashion. And for the most part, we did. I don't know anyone of our fans here that listen or out on the West Coast. We saw the just horrible pictures of people stuck on traffic. That was Tuesday before Thanksgiving. And I had I was already assuming the worst, you know, being off a, a major highway here in Pennsylvania. Fortunately, it was not that bad. The girls were occupied. So we had a great time. And as I mentioned before, you know, if you're a football fan, this weekend was fantastic. More Saturday and Sunday. But yep. I'll tease this out. Maybe if anyone wants to ask me more about this, but dude, Saturdays are getting a lot more fun than Sundays. I'm just going to, as a football fan, I'm just going to leave it there, but it's, uh, it, it was good though. How about you? How's your holiday? Good, man. I mean, like you said, Saturday was a lot of fun and, um, college football has been fun this year to watch. Um, Thanksgiving's always the same old, same old, you know, you're hanging out with family and you, yeah, I got my sister coming in from out of town. So that was good to see her. She came in from Texas. Girls love seeing her. So a, a lot of fun, you know, and, and really good food, too. Uh, that was the other thing. You know, we'd you know, we like to make a panine, which is, you know, uh, like a roast pork type of dish. And then you got the turkey and stuff like that. So a lot of good stuff uh, over there at the. Uh, yeah, like I mean, the, not yes. to cut you off. Well, I just did, obviously. obviously. Yeah, tell me about that, because obviously you are part Cuban, you know, part Afro-Cuban, part, you know, Puerto Rican. Yeah. You know, what's the spread look like? You just teased out something that is not the traditional turkey. And I say traditional because, I mean, it's what most people in America seem to eat. Right. And it's not always the most exciting thing. I tend to love it. But what what's going on in the Leon household? It, what's on the plate for Thanksgiving? Well, I never cook because I can't cook. I mean, I can't cook. Not a full bird. Like, I'm not going to sit here and make a full bird. Like, if I had to make a Thanksgiving meal, and let's say it's just the four of us, I'm going to my Boston market. And by the way, Boston market, if you want to pay us for that, I'll happily uh, eat Boston market for the rest of my life. Um, so, yeah, so I, I can cook, but outside of like making a full turkey. So you get you get turkey, you get some stuffing. I got to have rice and beans, obviously, as part of that. And then you get this this pork uh, a dish that I just mentioned. Right. Uh, with Benny. And then you have um, sometimes, you know, like her father wanted to make a ham. Uh, that's more for Christmas time. But. That was pretty much the dishes. Like, we, I, there's no real mac and cheese side. You know, there was cornbread and stuff like that. So you mix a little bit of of the the, the Cuban tradition with like the bandia and the rice and beans. But then you also add, you got your turkey, you got a little bit of of yams, and you got a little bit of of stuffing and some cornbread. So, so yeah, that's the way our our kind of Thanksgiving goes. So, um, speaking of giving thanks, I do want to uh, get into our first segment, Nick, here because. As this was all breaking, as everybody was kind of leaving for the holidays, you mentioned about that L.A. traffic, which is wild to see that. Uh, shout out to the folks that were sitting in that. Um, and as the days kind of went on in the holiday break, we started to realize that President Biden, the Qatar, Qatar excuse me, the nation of Qatar, uh, Egypt, Israel, Hamas, everyone was building these negotiations over a period of four days to ultimately get a ceasefire or a pause, whatever you want to call it, to allow over 50 or so hostages, mostly women and children that Hamas had, to be released over the next four days. Now, again, this is last week, so this was 
Friday going into Saturday morning, Sunday, and then coming into uh, where you're listening to this potentially on a Tuesday. So this past Monday, and now there's still talks as both Israel and Hamas are, are trying to extend this truce because part of it was, and the original agreement was, look, get some hostages freed back. Israel would also free 33 Palestinians that were held in jails. That was what just happened this past Monday. Under the agreement, Hamas was going to release 10 hostages each day. Uh, like I said, as of that Friday going into Saturday, um, and so far, Hamas has released 69 total hostages as of this taping, primarily women and children. Israel has agreed to free 150 Palestinians that were held in prisons in Israel, mainly women and minors, many of whom were detained but never charged. So that's a key, that's a key uh, thing to note there. And also, a lot of aid was allowed to flow into Gaza. So there was more aid trucks that were allowed to come into the country, Israeli officials said Egyptian and Qatari mediators pressed Hamas for 12 hours to change the list of who they would be releasing as part of this. Uh, and they finally agreed to that because Hamas, I guess, has a list of all of these hostages that have been held and, and what you know order or ranking they had classified with them. I want you to take a listen real quick, Nick, and we're going to react uh, on the other side to President Biden talking about how all of these negotiations came to be. If you missed any of this, take a listen to the president. This has been the product of a lot of hard work and weeks of personal engagement for me and my team. We've been in close contact with the leaders of Qatar, Egypt, and Israel, speaking with each one of them repeatedly over the past few weeks. And we will continue to remain personally engaged, personally engaged to see that this deal is fully implemented and work to extend the deal as well. For weeks, I've been advocating to pause in the fighting for two purposes, to increase the assistance getting into the Gaza civilians who need help and to facilitate release of hostages. And we know that innocent children in Gaza are suffering greatly as well because this war that Hamas has unleashed is so has such consequences. Under this deal, fighting in Gaza has now been paused for three days. Over that time, 58 hostages have been released, including the Thai, a Filipino, and Russian nationals. Dozens of families have been reunited. You know, funny enough, Nick, um, and, I, and I don't want to tease it too much, but as you're going to be taking this holiday break, we're going to have a correspondent that's been covering the war over there in Israel uh, coming on the program uh, from PBS. I'm going to Tease that in a, in a coming episode or so. Uh, it, so it'll be in, in a few episodes, but uh, she's going to be coming on the program. She does a fantastic job. If you watch PBS NewsHour or see any of the work over on NewsHour.org, you're going to know who this is. So uh, she'll be coming on the program. I'm excited to talk to her because some of her reporting is, is what we're reading here. And I'm reading some of the stuff as well from Axios as Barack Ravid has been doing a great job. We've invited him on the program as well. He's a little busy, obviously, with doing all this great reporting. So, but shout out to the journalists that are covering all this. The president mentioned there's something, Nick, and I want to get kind of your thoughts on this. Um, 14,850 Palestinians have been killed so far as of this taping, according to the Ministry of Health in in Gaza. Um, there's always a preface of like, well, Hamas is running Gaza. Do we trust those numbers? The president alluded to that once upon a time. And then when you talk to people 
uh, that are Palestinian, they'll say, hey, well, hey, wait a minute. I mean, these are images. These are videos that are being taken by journalists that are there on the ground showcasing what is happening. And he just mentioned there hundreds of, of, of innocent civilians, hundreds, thousands now, as according to that number, are dying. And I asked Representative Seth Moulton when he came on a few weeks ago about like, how do you how do you live between these two sentences? Like, I'm giving you I'm giving you weapons to shoot the people. And then the, when the people die, we're also helping to give them aid. And like, you got to go listen to his answer a couple episodes ago. It just has always stuck with me. It's like, it's so weird that we continue to do this. Like we're continuing and I get it. Israel is an ally. We can get into the history of that region, but we're giving them the weaponry because Israel has mentioned and Barack Ravid and other reporters have mentioned this, that Israel has vowed to continue the war after this pause is over. Even spokespersons that I've seen across the television sphere for the IDF and the Israeli government have all said full military power will be reigned upon Hamas until, and this is again, according to the defense minister, Yovah Galan, he said, we will not stop until we achieve our goal, which is the destruction of Hamas and bringing home all of the hostages from Gaza to Israel. But listen to the first part of that sentence, the destruction of Hamas. And that is after whenever this pause Ends. All right, Nick, now let me turn to you because I said a mouthful there about all of the hostages that have been freed. There are, there are potentially more that are going to be discussed over these next couple of days. As you're listening to this, more may have already been released or been negotiated upon as you know they're trying to continue this pause later on into the week. Um, the president mentioned there about some of the Thai nationals. There's some folks that were Russian nationals that were a part of captivity. Uh, we're going to get into some crazy stories of some of these hostages. I saw one about, uh, as as other networks have been covering all this, one guy was on CNN and his wife and two little girls have been you know, kidnapped, as you and I both have wife and two little girls. And both, all three of them were returned back to him as part of this hostage release. I forget the name of the family, but um, it is good to see that kind of stuff. What do you make of all of this and then what the president kind of said there? It's incredible to see people return home. Um, you know, all we've hoped for all this time is, you know, some opportunity in a hostage situation that hopefully people are returned to their families. And it's starting to happen. Regardless of where you stand on this conflict, what we can agree on is the hostages have to come home. And it's been great to see it. And for the for the Biden administration, it's been a huge success to be able to work with Qatar, work with others to ensure that this happens. You know, we've heard a lot of voices that have talked about ceasefires, that have talked about, you know, the the just the munitions that the US offers to Israel, like all kinds of the negativity. And and, and a lot of it is willing, it, it makes sense to have the conversation. But what we should be focusing on now is that hostages are starting to come home. And that's it. To your point about, you know, trying to wrap your head around providing you know weapons to someone and then on the other side of it trying to find peaceful solutions and trying to provide support to those who are being attacked by the very weapons that you provided to the attacker right it's it is hard and i i've 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 often wondered what it is about human beings that create this kind of rationalization for this and again i'm not saying either side is right or wrong on this people have argued that enough I've said what I've said about that already. 
But I've also thought about this idea of a ceasefire and that, that as you shared, you know, as soon as the ceasefire period ends, you know, the IDF talking about, well, we're going to go right back at it. And that's always been, that's just weird to me too. In a ceasefire, you'd think that all of these soldiers would just take a pause and, and recognize, you know, I've just been shooting, launching drones, launching missiles, all kinds of ungodly stuff. And we've taken a pause from the violence and somehow we're supposed to get amped up again. You know, it's, it's like playing a sport and then suddenly they sh- shut off the light, shut off the clock, and then there's a long break and then everything comes back on again. It's like, all right, re- resume. How do you do that? How do you just, and this is, we're talking about in war now, how do you sort of step back into that mentality of I'm supposed to kill my enemy? I'm supposed to harm my enemy um, after having a moment of, of inevitably reflection and a pause. And that's the strangest thing of the human experience is the ability to sort of turn the kill switch on. Um, I certainly for that reason could never serve, but, and I, you know, my, my heart goes out to those who do, but I also, I always come back to this and as foolish as I sound saying, and I'll keep saying it here. If Netanyahu and Hamas want to fight this out, go in the desert and do it. Honestly, go bring your weapons, whatever you want to do. Why are we subjecting so many damn people to this? that have to fight and have to launch bombs and shoot off guns. And when at the end of the day, this is the prime minister of Israel who has a view on this. This is the leaders of Hamas who have a view on this. Just line up your people and just get your leadership team out there and do it the old fashioned way. We don't need to involve all these people, but it'll never happen because Netanyahu's not picking up a weapon. And the leaders of Hamas are probably not the ones out there with the guns. This is just soldiers. These are people's children. These are people's husband or their wives siblings for mindless mindless conflict over a over a contested area that i mean we've seen not just since the forming of israel even before that like just folks who cannot refuse to get along and we play this out what seems to be every few years or every generation where this conflict keeps coming back we've had numerous people on the show who've talked about the fact that this feels like an endless conflict but finally we're taking a pause getting people home and the idea that, well, as soon as we do that, we get right back to stuff. And I understand the idea of continuing to fight until all hostages get back. I understand that the idea of the destruction of Hamas that goes back to what I said at the start is that this seems like a bigger goal for Israel is that the destruction of Hamas along with getting the hostages back. And I think you would think you would think that upon the return of the hostages, this matter is resolved and it's stopped. But Israel will not forgive what happened on October 7th, and I'm not blaming them for doing so. But the idea that we will not end this until a political organization is completely destroyed. Mind you, a political organization that's not like sitting in a building somewhere. This is almost like Al-Qaeda. You're going to have to go track these people down. And how do you sort them out from just ordinary citizens who just are tired of living in these just desperate situations there is no way to do that easily and as a result you're going to have more and more people die after a pause in in the fighting yeah and you know not only that uh you create a vacuum right if you were to let's say eradicate and i'm using air quotes in this and we've seen this in other uh territories and we you know the last episode we just had with with Curvin, we were uh, from this week explained we were discussing that and, and this is somebody who has served and has worked alongside our military. So um, the Palestinian Authority that's in the West Bank, 
the you know President Biden has talked about leaning into them and what they could do uh, with respect to this and. That's kind of been refuted by a bunch of different people in terms of, you know, that some people have called them Hamas light. Some people, not me. Again, these are other people that are out there on the television docket. So uh, and again, Israel, again, they will say this uh, until they're blue in the face. And you, there's video out there of, of different Hamas leaders and officials saying that their goal is to destroy Israel. So they'll continue to argue that, hey, well, they want to destroy us. We want to destroy them. We keep going round and round in circles. We talked at the beginning of the show about humanity. I did want to spotlight this one story that, Nick, you and I mentioned it when this all started, and I think it was around October 12th, 13th, when you and I were recording, we played a video of this father, uh, his, I believe his name is Thomas Hand, who was crying to friend of the show, Clarissa Ward, who's an international correspondent over at CNN. Uh, she was doing this story on him because he had been told that his daughter, Emily Hand, was killed at the kibbutz in southern Israel on October 7th. On October 7th, excuse me. So apparently his daughter had been staying at a friend's house and so she was staying over at the friend's house. And then obviously when the raid happens and stuff like that, he was told later by officials that she was killed. Well, long story short, we come to find out when the second wave of hostages happened over the weekend and they were released by Hamas, Emily Han, this nine-year-old little girl, was a part of that hostage exchange. Now, I believe he knew beforehand that she wasn't killed maybe like a week or so ago, but still unclear with respect to that. But I want you to take a listen to what he said when he did that interview with Clarissa Ward, when he thought that his daughter had been taken so short in her life from him. And then what he has said now, since she's been returned back home, take a listen. I know for a fact that she was led away by the Hamas terrorists there's eyewitness accounts of it. Before learning that his daughter was alive, Emily's father memorably, painfully told CNN's Clarissa Ward that her death was a better alternative than being held captive by Hamas. That was the best possibility that I was hoping for. She was either dead or in Gaza. And if you know anything about what they do to people in Gaza, that is worse than death. He is waiting for a chance to hug his beautiful little girl. I was told that uh, she was found in the kibbutz and she was found dead. But in actual fact, it was a mistake. She wasn't found dead. I was, uh, I was relieved. I was relieved that... Uh, she was dead and it was all it was all over it would have been pretty quick yeah it was it was a relief thinking that she wasn't in gaza i don't even know where to begin there um i will say i remember seeing this story with tom hand uh again been following clarissa for a while and i uh, have messaged with her in the past on some other stuff that she's done reporting wise um 
And I remember seeing that story and it obviously moved me because his daughter, again, random daughter staying over a friend's house, not thinking anything of it. And then you come to find out that, you know, not only that, the friend, the friend's mother, all kidnapped by Hamas, he's told that they were dead. So now he's sitting here with the grief of thinking that his nine-year-old daughter is dead. And then you find out five weeks later that this is a mistake. One, two, it's her birthday. So now you know she may still be alive. And then a week later, she comes home and you heard there a little bit in the video of him crying, um, saying something, I'm assuming in Hebrew there, he is, they are Irish Israeli. I have found out the family, um, Nick, you know, I, I, this, this, this kind of resonated obviously with me. We, we all have little kids, your kids, obviously closer to Emily's age than mine. Mine's are, um, it's, it's, in, it's an incredible story. It has a happy ending, but I just don't know how I would feel about all of this range of emotions, especially we've talked a little bit about the Israeli government not giving so many answers to the family members of the hostages. Um, we've seen this now as town halls have been done by Lester Holt with the hostages. I mentioned it recently. I've seen others that have gone on other TV appearances. And the biggest thing from them has been the lack of communication up until all of this happened. And don't forget, there's, it was 240 people that were originally kidnapped. Only 69 have been freed as of this taping. So that leaves 170 other people, mostly men, that are still out there, you know, hostage families still don't know the status of where their child is. I think of one family that has a 22-year-old son. And the reason I'm thinking of him is because he's wearing a Nick jersey. And obviously everybody knows I'm a Nick fan. Um, and, you know, the family's at a game, you know, just, just in the preseason. And then they went to Israel on a trip. And all of a sudden this happens at the kibbutz that they were staying at. So visiting family. Um, so it's just it's this range of emotions. It's the, it's the thinking that your daughter is dead. It's the, the, the government gave me the wrong info. Now I know that she's actually in Gaza in these tunnels. Like I was just swept up in it. And I saw this story. I was telling my wife, I'm like, do you remember this story? And I just, I, I was so fixated on it because the way he was explaining to Clarissa Ward, the things that happen in Gaza and what he perceives, or maybe he thinks or knows about the way they treat prisoners and hostages. Um, he just didn't want his daughter to be subjugated to that. And here he finds out five weeks later, she's alive. And a week after that, she's released. What do you make of of this incredible story, man, and the way it, it played out and the twists and turns that I mentioned there. I wouldn't know what to say. Um, you know, you go through this process of grief knowing that your child is gone. And there's a point I imagine where you're, you've resolved that, you know, your family's minus one. So then fast forward five weeks later and you find out that that's actually not true. Of course you're happy, 
but I can't even imagine, I can't even imagine the mind bleep that happens and who, who are you, who do you get angry with? Who do you blame while all at the same time, immense gratitude. It's to say emotional roller coaster really doesn't do this justice, but I can't think of any other way to explain it is this like just rising tide and falling as well of, of what a parent goes through. And yeah, obviously as you and I are parents, it's the, it's, it's the nightmare, you know, in this country, we worry constantly about our, our kids in schools, you know, because we can't seem to get that one. Right. Um, but in other parts of the country, you have situations like this, other parts of the world. And you're just, you just live in fear that that's not, you just, you pray that that's the situation you'll never be in and to be in it. And then to find out that you're actually not, and that your kid com- comes home, there's not enough blessings that you can offer to, to God or to anyone. Um, I'm extremely happy for the family, but I certainly, I don't know, man, like you, you know, for a government to share information on, you know, who has been killed, who's not been, who's been taken as hostage. It, it's, it must be impossible. I mean, neither side trusts each other. So the names of people being collected that have been taken by Hamas, like what, why would I trust any level of transparency from them to share names? And only now, or you know, as hostages are being given back, are this, is this happening? I would wonder is there another hand family that's going to happen? That's going to come across something like this. That may well be the case. Um, and it also just says too, that there is so little trust, so little transparency in this, that this is just barbarism. It's just two sides that cannot stand one another and engage in warfare. And in the midst of something that is, you know, international law, <laughs> you're supposed to honor this. They don't. There's no reason to trust either side. And, you know, for that father to consider what could have been like what he assumes would happen to his daughter in that place and to almost prefer that she die because it's quick and it's done and it's the pain is gone. And then to find out that she survived, there's going to be a mountain of questions you're going to want to find out from her. How's she doing? Is she healthy? Is she safe? You know, did anything happen to her while she was, you know, kept as a hostage? Um, Yeah, it's. It's weird. I mean, there's obviously gratitude. I think we all feel for this great story, but at the same time, you're also horrified by the just absurdity of what these people do to each other yeah, that anyone does to each other in, in time of war. Yeah. No, well said. It It is true. Like as we're, as we're thinking about hostages being returned and this heartwarming story of it all, we forgot they were taken in the first place and the brutality that, occurred on October 7th. So you're right. It's such a, it's such a weird uh, balance, man. So we're going to be following all of this with respect to the hostage release. Uh, If there's more coming down the pike um, as Israel and Hamas are continuing to extend this truce as more aid enters Gaza, like I mentioned, we're going to be having a correspondent uh, from one of the networks coming on that's actually been to the region Actually, also uh, potentially having somebody coming on that has not negotiated so much hostage uh, crises and things like that, but has worked at the State Department and has dealt with situations like this, trying to get American prisoners back that have been wrongly imprisoned and stuff like that. So stay tuned for more on that in the coming weeks from us. 
When we come back after the break, she's the author of the book, Democracy in Darkness. Caitlin Carter joins us to break down this great book out now available wherever books are sold. Caitlin, we come back after the break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode is presented by our friends over at BetterHelp, a new partnership that we're doing here at the show. I had been alluding to this a while ago because I can see it playing out everywhere. It's the end of the year. Uh, events are playing out not only here in the U.S., but internationally. And people are anxious. They're overwhelmed. And we need to talk. I mean, it's the purpose of this show, right? Can we please talk? And we've partnered with our friends over at BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy I want you all to give BetterHelp a try because it's online, it's convenient, it's flexible, it's suitable to your schedule. Nick, I know you're excited about this partnership and we've been talking a lot about the mental health space and getting people to talk again, right? Give us a little bit of your thoughts on, on this partnership with BetterHelp. You know, back in 2020, during the pandemic, you know, we, we saw the benefits of going virtual. And one of the biggest examples of that was the work that the folks at BetterHelp were doing about making mental health av available in the virtual space. But oftentimes when we think about BetterHelp, we think about post-pandemic and the reality is that BetterHelp has been around since 2013 to help provide access to healthcare. And they have about 30,000 licensed therapists that they're working with to offer that opportunity. I'm very excited about this partnership. Yeah, that's very well said. So all you gotta do is go to betterhelp.com slash can we please talk, you're gonna get 10% off your first month, you're going to fill out a brief questionnaire while you're there so you can get matched up with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists as well anytime for no additional charge. You know, I want people to start talking again. That's why we've done this partnership with our friends over at BetterHelp. Hit the link in our show notes or go to betterhelp.com slash can we please talk to get started today. This episode is presented by our friends, our good friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. The coffee that's keeping me awake when Nick Savary's putting me to sleep with one of his trains of thought. Are you, you give me a look here, Nick. Uh, give me a little bit of how Fresh Roasted Coffee keeps you awake when I'm boring you with some of my trains of thought. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Interesting introduction. Folks, I'm a huge fan, as you all know, of Fresh Roasted Coffee, primarily for the simple fact about diversity. If you're a tea person, they've got you covered. If you're a coffee person, they got you covered too. Mike and I take our coffee very differently. Mike is a Keurig man that is efficient, that is tasty. That's the way to go. 
I am a French press person. Nowadays, I actually grind my own beans. So when I get my batch of fresh roasted coffee, it goes right into the grinder, then to the French press, boiled water, let's go. But in either case, our cup of coffee comes out delicious, mostly because they ask you at the jump, what's just tell us about you. Simple quiz. They'll direct you to the bean or brand that you you should be getting in touch with. And that's the way to go. And then they just produce an incredible cup of coffee again, regardless of how you do it. No, that's exactly right. You can take the quiz over at freshroastedcoffee.com and in the show notes page right now of this episode, hit the link for a discount or enter in the promo code after you've taken the quiz, after you've selected the coffee you're going to order, enter in the promo code. Can we please get 20 for 20% off your first purchase? I'm telling you, this coffee is delicious. Go to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, kind enough to join us here on the podcast. She's the author of a great book that's out now, Democracy in Darkness. She's also a professor over at Notre Dame, and that's Caitlin Carter. Caitlin, Mike Leon, Nick Severi, thank you so much for uh, hopping on the podcast with us. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I was reading this book last night uh, as my wife was reading her book. We like reading books at, at night. She's on the iPad. I'm on the actual physical copy. And I, I had a bunch of different questions lined up for you. But first, for our audience, maybe that's not familiar with the book or they're at a Barnes and Noble right now and they see this on the shelves. Tell our audience a little bit about about this book and what made you want to write it. Uh, yeah, well, I worked in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years before I went to graduate school and I was doing media relations. And I got really interested in the relationship between public opinion and our elected officials. So I, I was particularly interested in the role of the media in facilitating that relationship. So when I went to graduate school to study history, I thought, you know, I'm going to go back to the origin. I'm going to go back to the 18th century and look at how people at the time thought about these questions when they were setting up our government. So the book really tries to understand the origins of modern representative democracy by looking at how people thought about what should be done openly, um, transparently, and what could be done in secret. And I just found that debates about that really spoke to the core of how representative democracy came to function um, in the U.S. and also in France. Caitlin, in your book, you talk about the role of the perception of transparency, as you just mentioned, the formation of the governments in the U.S. and France. You know, looking at this now in 2023, you know, how do we still experience the because your book also mentions that the reactions from both citizenry was a little different by the way transparency and secrecy played out. When we look at those two nations, you know, in the current time, has that played any role in the influence? I asked this partly because I think of even the reaction that the French will sometimes have to like a labor dispute, like people run to the streets and you know, are much more active, whereas in the U.S. Sure. we're seeing an uptick in that. Uh, and in labor as well. But oftentimes our reaction could sometimes be more muted um, in, in deference to our political officials as opposed in France. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, the book really traces a different attitude, as you note at the beginning, toward questions of transparency and secrecy in government. So in France, from the beginning of their revolution in 1789, there's this real commitment to transparency, absolute transparency, uh, as much as they can do it. So keeping open doors to all their legislative meetings and meetings where they're writing their constitution, for example. Um, and there's this real kind of expectation that there's going to be open doors and that those records are all going to be published. And they, um, for the most part, revolutionaries really commit to that. 
Um, in the United States, it's not so much that. Uh, there's absolutely those who do have that expectation. Um, but there's also another facet in the United States. There's also a kind of a group that says, wait a minute, um, there's some utility for meeting behind closed doors sometimes um, and kind of uh, deploying secrecy, especially in the deliberative process. Um, so in the U.S., there's much more of a willingness to embrace that and, and kind of use those tactics in, in politics um, early on. And then it kind of gets a little bit more transparent going forward into the 19th century, whereas France kind of goes the other way and kind of tries to shut things down a little bit as it goes forward into the 19th century. Um, but yeah, I think we see the legacies of that today. I mean, I argue in the book that the importance of the use of that kind of secrecy at the founding moment, you know, had lasting implications for how we think about representative government and the way in which we think it becomes legitimate. So, you know, we we tend to have a higher tolerance for our elected officials, you know, going to today, Washington and saying, OK, we elected them to go and make the best decisions. And there's some, you know, a degree of kind of trust in that. And in France, I mean, there's more of a legacy of we want our elected officials to do exactly what we tell them to do and, and want them to do. So I think that, yeah, you can see some legacies of that down to the present day. You know, there's a bunch in the book that we're going to get to. We're going to get into some secrecy that you just mentioned there. I love that you I did not know this before you came on about that you had worked in D.C. and some of the overlap between you and I. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about that. But first thing, it's something I noticed in the book yesterday. And it was funny because we were teasing the interview uh, in recent episodes. And I had said accidentally, uh, democracy dies in darkness. And then it's because of the WAPO masthead. And then I realized you actually mentioned it in the book about democracy dies in darkness is dark and darkness, excuse me, is the masthead of the Washington Post. But it was founded in the secrecy of darkness. I'm paraphrasing what you said. How does your book get at reconciling that? Because you mentioned it in the beginning of the book. You're like, I'm going to take you through. So without giving it all away for everybody, tell us a little bit about that dichotomy between those two sentences. Yeah. So the book traces the origins of that kind of claim that we can find on top of the Washington Post today, that democracy dies in darkness. That's kind of the conviction that came about in the age of revolutions itself back in the 18th century. So the book kind of shows how transparency really came to be considered very central to democracy um, in the modern era. But at the same time, the book starts with this question of, well, how do we explain that at the same time, our constitution in the United States was written behind closed doors um, under oath of secrecy? And so the book tries to point out that um, despite our commitment to transparency and how much that's used in rhetoric about politics and especially about democracy. Um, in, in fact, uh, our founding moment and many other important moments in our politics actually do um, occur in secrecy or use secrecy throughout the, the deliberative process. Um, so the book just kind of points out that there is that um, disagreement sometimes between uh, what's happening in practice and in action versus what people are talking about um, rhetorically as being really central to democracy. Caitlin, on, the, on that subject of secrecy, I want to get your thoughts about about voting you know, at the legislative level, because mm -hmm. you know, often right now, our politicians, even the most ignorant of those, will proudly talk about the way they voted. And it sometimes often seems as though there are politicians who could be swayed to possibly cross party lines, but there's the pressure of constituents, there's the pressure of the media that if it's the, if it's found that a person votes a certain way, that it would go against them in an upcoming election. Where's your stance on the possibility of what I would consider essentially a blind election where no one 
outside of the legislative body knows who voted on what. Could that possibly be a corrective for what we're seeing now in terms of political infighting and tribalism? Yeah, you know, I came into this project thinking that transparency is always the best policy. And I, I sort of came in with that kind of bias. I think that is our just contemporary bias um, when thinking about these issues. But as I worked through the project, I started to think about it um, a little differently. And I started to think oh, maybe that's not always true and that there might, in fact, be a role for some level of secrecy in promoting better policy decisions or promoting compromise or changing of you know minds or opinions. Um, and I think that you're right. I mean, we've seen that come up sometimes recently, I think, um, in the I think it was in the first Trump impeachment hearing, you did have some officials, I remember kind of saying, well, if this vote happened, if this was a secret vote, um, you know, in the Senate that actually he might be convicted, uh, right? Um, versus if it's a public vote, it'll never happen. And I think that, you know, you sometimes see that come up, but there's a real reticence to ever do that. And and I, I don't know, I don't know that I would say that it's necessarily something we should you know, do because it's all case dependent, right? Um, and if you start allowing all votes to happen in secret, then, you know, I think that can also lead down some dangerous roads where policymakers become really divorced from public opinion or their constituents, you know, far more than we would want them to be. Professor Carter, you know, you just mentioned the former president. If you say his name three times like Beetlejuice, he may appear. So <laughs> I did want to get into that because it's so funny because here is somebody, and you you wrote about this in the book about the thin line between you know democracy and autocracy, and the former president recently made some statements on an inter interview with Univision down here in my neck of the woods in Miami, talking about some of the things that he would do as president in terms of you know either prosecuting political opponents or at least going after it from the investigation standpoint. Mm -hmm. That doesn't feel democratic. Uh, what, do, what do you make of the current state of politics in America where there is somebody running on a platform like that, that kind of um, fails in the face of, of what democracy is supposed to sound and look like? And is there any parallels in your book? I, we, we have a bunch of authors over my shoulder here that have drawn on historical parallels between media coverage in the 70s of figures like this to now, is there anything in the book that you, as you were writing this and looking back, anything that there, there was like a Trump-like figure that did some of this mm -hmm. stuff that that you kind of relayed, or at least in your research, uh, learned a little bit more about? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I can point to any specific person where I would say this is a parallel to um, Donald Trump. He, in many ways, I think he is uh, new and unique, which is not to say that everything about him or his presidency or campaign is, you know, unprecedented. But um, I, I mean, I think that you point to something important, which is that over the last several years, our democracy has felt like it's especially fragile. Um, and we're seeing a lot of norms broken. We're seeing a lot of um, kind of forays into uh, behavior, rhetoric that we would think of as more authoritarian. Um, so, I mean, one thing that I would think of in terms of historical parallel or something that jumped out to me when I was writing the book is that in the 18th century, a lot of these people I'm writing about really thought, you know, transparency is the, it's the cure. It's the cure for demagogues. You know, that's the way that demagogues will be brought down. If we just have more, more publicity, more transparency, they, you know, they can't really stand up to scrutiny like that. Um, and I think that Donald Trump you know, living through recent years kind of poses a challenge to that line of thinking, because, you know, the more transparency, the more 
publicity media coverage of you know him and things that he says you're starting to see a lot of people question um you know if that is is a good thing um you know that that's the role of journalists to provide that kind of scrutiny or if it is you know potentially having a negative effect and providing him a lot of attention and kind of the fuel to continue um, you know, being a presence in politics when otherwise he might not. So the book actually does speak to that. I think some of the, con you know, unforeseen consequences or complications of transparency and the potential for that to turn into something that's a bit more um, performance or, or spectacle um, in politics. And I do think those of us who, you know, have been following things for the last decade uh, probably have found ourselves thinking about that <laughs> a fair amount, um, the role of spectacle in politics. To, to that end about your awareness of American politics, you're an educator. You know, right now, most recently, actually, we had a musician that was complaining about spending in New York City, budget shortfalls, and then placing that at the feet of the president. You know, when you have college students in your classroom, you know, what do you find to be the biggest blind, well, some of the biggest blind spots that students have? And then if you could be able to talk to high school teachers, middle school, social studies teachers, what do you wish would happen more at the, in, in more of the K-12 setting about better either preparing students or making sure students are a little bit more civically or in general aware uh, of how our government actually works by the time they get to your classroom? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that is something that's really important and we definitely need more of. So, you know, right now I'm teaching a class on the Constitution, the history of the Constitution, and, um, you know, always coming in, I ask how many of you have ever read the Constitution? And often not many of them have. And that really mirrors, uh, you know, the broader American public. Um, so I think it would be great if we had more of a focus on, you know, actually reading things like our Constitution, knowing how the branches of government work, um, and really, you know, learning and teaching American history. I think it's really vital if we want to prepare um, you know, kids to become responsible adults and participants in our society that they, you know, they need to have that grounding. And they also need to know how to think for themselves. Um, I mean, that's something else I notice, especially now is that, you know, if you ask students where they get their news or how they get their information, it is really atomized. And often they're going to social media and, and that's kind of how they're consuming information. So I do think we also need to think just about information literacy and, and thinking about, you know, how do we, um, you know, ensure that we're sending people out there who are equipped to take in the fire hose of, you know, media and information coming at them and, and actually, you know, discern true from false and, and make their way through that so that they can, you know, have informed opinions and, and participate. Caitlin, Mike, a moment ago, talked about the former president of the United States. Mm -hmm. I want to ask about the incoming president of Argentina. I'm going to totally take a different sway. Okay. <laughs> but the most recent election, you had Javier Malay, uh, who is a Trump disciple, very similar former TV person, economist, um, completely goes off script, talks about getting rid of government institutions and transparency is very much part of his platform. I bring this up because A, he just won, but B, it seems like there is this idea that the more transparent government is the way to go. And as a, as a, as a historian, as a professor, has that model ever worked? It seems that I mean, in your research, it seems like the answer is you came in with the eyes of maybe you could and not so much. But in, in your learning, has it ever been the case or are we being dangerously naive 
when a government or a government leader promises you essentially to have glass houses in the uh, in their government buildings, entirely glass houses? Sure. Um, I, I, I mean, in all of human history, I don't know, I can't speak to all of human history, but I can speak to the, you know, examples that I know well, which is the 18th century, the founding of kind of modern representative democracy. And yeah, I mean, what I found is that if in France, for example, where they really were dedicated to a high level of transparency, you know, that was done to try to foster trust between the, the public and their elected officials at a moment when they're trying to establish a representative democracy for the first time. Um, but it had a paradoxical effect of actually sometimes undermining trust in the government, because when people could see, you know, everything their elected officials uh, did, everything they said, you know, they, those who were following closely often, you know, kind of raised their voices and said, wait a minute, I don't I don't actually really agree with what you're you're saying in there. I don't actually agree with what you're doing. And then that led to a sense that, well, how representative is this government um, if it doesn't seem to be uh, aligning with expressed public opinion. Now, that's a little tricky because in the 18th century, you know, ascertaining what public opinion actually was at any point was even harder than today. You know, that's before public opinion polling and things like that that we do have today. Um, so, you know, some of those challenges are maybe a little better. But in the end, I think that that did teach us a lesson that we have to keep in mind that sometimes, you know, transparency can be, um, number one, more for show than it really is in substance. So, um, you know, it also could be used to say, if you're going to make everything transparent, then it makes it harder for people to take that in, right? It actually could be a mechanism to hide different things just by inundating people with so much you know, to watch or see that they can't really make sense of it. Um, so that's one challenge. Um, but another challenge, I think, is that we, we might think about how doing that can sometimes empower the loudest or most proximate uh, kind of voices of public opinion um, to government uh, in a way that, you know, they're not as empowered if they're not able to seize on every detail and you know, piece of the process um, in politics. And when they are able to do that, it can sometimes have a counterintuitive effect of kind of undermining trust in the government, actually. Um, so I think that's what my research and the precedent kind of shows on, on that. Kaylee, you know, before we let you go, uh, we love to ask authors that come on the show this. So uh, uh, somebody's right now at a local bookstore or they're at a national chain. They happen to see the book. Oh, Democracy and Darkness, Secrecy, Transparency in the Age of... Give the elevator pitch if you were standing over their shoulder and being like, hey, that's my book. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Give them the elevator pitch as to why they should purchase this book. Yeah, I would say, do you want to try to understand better how our democracy came to look the way that it does and function the way that it does? This book might be for you. Um, it uses debates over what should be transparent and what could be secret in government to try to understand how people thought about uh, democracy as a form of government and how it should work. And these are questions that we are still grappling with today. So if you're trying to come up with your answer to that and what you think about these questions, I, I think the book might be really interesting to you in providing some historical context. That's understatement of the year about what's happening with democracy right now. I can't thank you enough. Uh, Caitlin, for coming on the podcast. Like I mentioned, Democracy and Darkness, you can go get the book wherever books are sold. Continued success to you. Uh, your students at Notre Dame are lucky to have you. Please be safe. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you.
This episode is presented by the good folks over at Better Sleep, a personalized sleep experience for more restful nights and wakeful days. Nick, how's your sleeping habits, buddy? I know you got two kids. You wake up early. You go to sleep late, probably. Take me through. Are you are you sleeping better? Do you need help getting to sleep? What's, what's, what's your big uh, issue and hang up here as you're trying to fall asleep at night? My quality sleep. I, I tend to, I tend to go to sleep late. You know, I, I love to read, and but inevitably I do have to get up early. So I'm averaging probably maybe like five hours of what I would consider like quality sleep. So yeah, I'm. I was excited you mentioned this partnership because. You know, one of the things about Better Sleep that's awesome is the fact that the entire sleep experience is what they focus on. Everything from sounds to help you sleep, you know, better understanding your sleep patterns. And Mike, that's that's really the breakdown that they offer. Super easy app to use. Um, I can't brag enough about it. I'm starting to use it myself just to really just better understand how I sleep and how I can improve that because it's we take it for granted. But almost any athlete will tell you any professional will tell you our understanding of sleep is coming to the forefront of what really helps to improve performance. So I'm, I'm all for it. No, you're right. Anybody will tell you, you need your eight hours at least. Improve your well-being in just one week. If you go to the link right now in our show notes, it's going to take you over to better sleep and you can take the quiz. They have a take the quiz button that's available right there as soon as you come into the app. So that way it can adjust the sounds and everything you need to get a better quality sleep. Click the link in our show notes right now and head to bettersleep.com for a restful night's sleep. All right, our thank yous to Caitlin Carter there. That is our show. Go get her book available wherever books are sold. If you want to watch the video portion of our interview with Caitlin, head over to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. We should pop right up. Audio podcast platforms, you know by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody listening to us on Good Pods, YouTube Music. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. You can't do without them. Can't do without each and every one of you that listens to this program. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.